Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 130th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is planning your cybersecurity budget for 2022. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, PINow.com and Casefleet. Today, our guest is Sherry Davidoff, the CEO of LMG Security and author of the recently released book, Data Breaches. As a recognized expert in cybersecurity and data breach response, Sherry has been called a security badass by the New York Times. Her professional experiences are featured in the book, Breaking and Entering, The Extraordinary Story of a Hacker Called Alien. Sherry is a GIAC certified forensic examiner and penetration tester receiving her degree in computer science and electrical engineering from MIT. Her new book on ransomware response will be available later this year. As usual, it's great to have you with us, Sherry. Thanks so much, John and Sharon. I can't believe you've done 30 podcasts since we last talked. You've been very productive. <laughs> we, we work on that and, of course, getting some of the best guests, too, which we, we manage today. So let's start out by talking about our, most of our audience is, is lawyers, of course. How much should law firms be spending on cybersecurity? And I'm sure there's a difference between the, the big guys and the little guys. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like you know the answer I'm probably going to say, which is it depends. And it's all about a process and determining what level of risk you're willing to accept and how much do you want to spend on reducing that risk. So I break it down into four steps. Number one, you have to know what it is you're trying to protect. How much data do you hold? What type of data do you have? Where is it? Etc. Most organizations skip that step and just sort of try to create a security program based on like no specific to start, and that's really the foundation. What is it that you're trying to protect and where is it? And then the second piece of this is understand your obligations. You cannot fully understand your obligations until you know exactly how much data you have and what type of data it is. Because as you guys know, there's different laws surrounding the regulation of information in all different states and different countries. You guys are the attorneys, so I'll let you chime in there if you want. <laughs> but the bottom line is you have to understand what your, what your legal obligations are because you may need to put certain security protocols in place based on those obligations. And we often forget those contractual obligations. I've seen so many times uh, over the years that attorneys signed a HIPAA BAA 12 years ago, and uh, you never really took the time to go through and sort out exactly how you're going to implement that. So make sure you fully understand all of your contractual obligations as well. And once you have that foundation, create your risk management plan and price it all out. I wouldn't suggest just creating a risk management plan by coming up with, you know, random technologies that sound good. Instead, we should be using a checklist. And our national government here in the United States has created um, the NIST cybersecurity framework, for example, which is a controls framework, a list of recommended standards and things that you can do to control and manage your risk. So don't reinvent the wheel. Grab uh, something like the NIST cybersecurity framework to use as your checklist or whatever your controls framework is uh, that you choose and think 
think is best for your organization. You are not going to be able to check every item in the controls framework, and that's where a risk assessment comes in. So understand what the big threats are, what the likelihood and impact would be if something bad happened, and then prioritize which controls you're actually going to implement. And then finally, make sure that you and all of the leadership within your organization are comfortable with any residual risks that you're not addressing. So that's the four steps. Know what you're trying to protect, understand your obligations, create that risk management plan and price it out, and then make sure you're comfortable with your residual risks. And I want to conclude that by saying that one thing we do know is that cybersecurity spending is going up across the board here in 2021. According to Gartner, cybersecurity spending is likely to increase about 12.4% this year. So that means worldwide, we're probably going to hit $150.4 billion. And that's because the risks of hacking have gone up and the damages have as well. Attackers have been evolving more effective tactics. And as a result, we're seeing huge losses because of it. And that's a great segue because ever since the pandemic, the work from home environment, all this this stuff that's going on the remote access, the attackers are really changed the way they're kind of going after businesses and going after the individual users. Talk a little bit about that and and what that would impact would be on the budget now that we're in this kind of a different world, if you will. Yeah, absolutely, John. I appreciate you connecting the dots there because really we have to invest more because the attackers are are getting more effective and they're changing the way they attack. There's a couple really key changes in the attack landscape that that everyone should understand. First of all, criminals have gone through kind of an industrial revolution. So they have figured out how to make record amounts of profit. You see these ransomware gangs with $5 million ransom demands. Even uh, CNA had a $40 million ransom payment earlier this year. So they're making huge amounts of money, and then they're reinvesting it into their technology. And they're um, hiring employees, hiring contractors to help improve their processes. Recently, the Conti ransomware gang leaked a playbook that shows they have instructions for any hackers on their staff. And those instructions help them leverage zero-day attacks, help them understand what kinds of information they should be going after when they're hacking into an organization. So they've gotten very sophisticated. They've scaled up. They've undergone this industrial revolution. And we need to invest a little bit more to protect against that. And I've been focusing on ransomware. In fact, that's the topic of my new book, Ransomware Response and Prevention. Because ransomware is a huge contributing factor, ransomware contributed to 41% of all cyber insurance claims last year, according to March. We're seeing the ransomware gangs in particular reaching that new level of sophistication. They have franchise models. So we have ransomware operators that are creating the processes and the software and then allowing other organized crime groups to use that to attack people. The other big change we're seeing with ransomware gangs is that they are now targeting data theft. And they're not only holding organizations hostage by locking up all your files, they are now threatening to publish your data and your client's data unless you pay a fee. And as a result, um, that is a very very effective and scary tactic. They are able to exact higher dollar payments because of it. Well, that kind of brings us to to something that we worry about a lot, and that is that most lawyers still don't seem to know that they are under an ethical duty to monitor for data breaches. So tell us how, how they can do more effective monitoring and what does it mean? Why is it so critical? 
Yeah, thanks, Sharon. Effective monitoring is absolutely critical for detecting cyber infections and also attacks that are in progress. Antivirus is an important piece, uh, an important component of your cybersecurity program, but antivirus software absolutely will not catch everything. In fact, um, here at LMG, we have a laboratory and we like to go down to the dark web and uh, actually purchase hacker tools and try them out in the lab and see what they do. And many of them literally have a checkbox that says evade antivirus, yes, no. Um, in in fact, that's one of the features that they tout when you're looking at hacker tools to buy on the dark web. So we know that they're evading antivirus. They're, um, in many cases, evading automated detection. You really want to make sure that you have 24-7 network monitoring of your environment. And this can be accessible even to small and mid-sized organizations. Outsource it. Do not expect your own IT staff to be sitting there 24-7 and monitoring because you have to make sure that you're able to respond to it quickly as well. We know that when hackers break into organizations, they are often dwelling, lurking in your network for anywhere from a few days to months or sometimes even years. And sometimes they're also selling access to other cyber criminal gangs in that process. And in that, in that time frame, they're looking through your information. They're spelunking for sensitive records. Often they'll copy out huge volumes of data like your data repositories. They're also specifically going after your cyber insurance coverage information because they want that when they're negotiating. Uh, at LMG, when we negotiate ransom payments, often we find that the criminals will settle for just under the cyber insurance uh, coverage limit because they have a copy of that policy. They also understand your finances. They'll be looking for your PL, your balance sheet, things like that, so that they understand how much of a ransom demand you could potentially afford. So they're armed with all that information because they are dwelling in your network, searching through it and finding things that are useful to them. That also gives us an opportunity to detect them, and you want to detect them while they're dwelling in there. So make sure you have a monitoring service. You might also want to consider threat hunting. This is where an experienced professional actively goes into your network and hunts for threats. Um, at LMG, we specialize in this, and it is shocking the number of times that we find a threat and are able to avert a crisis, prevent that actual ransomware attack from happening because we're able to remove the malware before it really metastasizes into that full-blown crisis. Let's take that a little farther, Sherry, and let's talk about prevention and some of the security technologies that, that are available for, for users today and, and, and firms and businesses. And which ones do you think that they should have in, have in place to, to help kind of maybe put some buffer there against and block these cyber attacks? Yeah, well, this ties into your earlier question about attacker tactics. So what are the top ways that attackers are actually breaking into organizations? We have some very good statistics on this. We know that, number one, they're getting in through email phishing. So you click a link in a phishing email, your computer gets infected. Number two, they're getting in through remote login interfaces. And this is huge, especially during the pandemic when a lot of people just fired up remote desktop and that allows attorneys to log in remotely from wherever they are. Unfortunately, criminals can also potentially log in remotely as well. They can either try to hack into that login interface if it's available on the internet, or if they've stolen your password, a lot of times they can just log in using that password. Uh, we see a ton of attacks, including ransomware attacks that happen all because of one little stolen password. And then there's software vulnerabilities. That's actually a distant third most of the time, it's email phishing and then remote login weaknesses using those stolen credentials. 
So in order to defend against email phishing, number one, you got to conduct training regularly. You need to deploy spam filtering, and then you need to make sure your systems are patched so that if someone clicks on a bad link, your computer isn't vulnerable. That remote login issue is actually a little bit trickier. The, the first thing you can do is just prevent remote login interfaces from showing up on the internet to begin with, use a VPN or some other method. But another piece of the issue is, is the fact that people are reusing passwords. So many of us, we're not designed you know, to remember passwords. I don't know about you guys, I hate passwords. Um, so I'd, I'd rather not use them if I didn't have to. And it's nice that we're seeing biometrics and other things. But in the meantime, the human brain is not designed to remember a zillion passwords with numbers and letters and squirrel noises and this and that. Unfortunately, hackers know that people reuse passwords across a lot of different sites. If they steal your Twitter password, they will try using it in your bank account, at work, and all kinds of other places. And they know that you might put a one at the end or change 2019 to 2020 or summer to fall or whatever. And they have automated tools that will try variations on a stolen password. So they might get a stolen password from a data breach or from a phishing attack against you, or maybe they've uh, grabbed it from a file on your computer if they infected your system. The bottom line is they've got passwords. Researchers have found that there are at least 15 billion stolen passwords available on the dark web. So they're out there. And once your password's stolen, the criminals try it and they will just log into your accounts. So assume that your passwords will be stolen. And that gets us to the answer to the question you just asked, which is that what technology should we invest in? Number one, multi-factor authentication. Password theft is a win, not an if. Assume your password is out there and use multiple methods to verify your identity before you log in. So you might have a password and an app on your phone. That is fantastic. Or a little fob you plug into your computer. Use a unique password for every account. And I don't know, John, does that give you a little heart attack when I say that? No, I, I, I have. I, look, I think at the last I looked at my password manager, I've got like 880 different records in there. So you're right. There's no way I can remember that. Well, you <laughs> just I, said I, the magic <laughs> words. That's right. You were using a password manager because we know yep, that the yep. human brain isn't designed for this. And that's why you're all cool and calm about it. But if you don't have a password <laughs> manager, the idea of having 880 different passwords in your head is crazy. <laughs> so that gets to the next piece, which is use a password manager. Guys, they are cheap. In some yep, in yep. some cases, they're free. Um, I don't know. Do you want to share what, what your password manager is? I, I use a e-wallet. Very nice. And I like LastPass. There's also Dashlane. There's lots of good ones. They're inexpensive. They will remember your passwords for you. They will actually fill them in for you too, so you don't have to type. And it makes it a lot less likely that they would be picked up by attackers uh, in the event that your computer was infected. So really great idea to use a password manager. Those are my top uh, technologies to invest in, multi-factor authentication and password managers. I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) You you mentioned already, of course, that employee training is critical, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, I know we both do some of that. Uh, But how do law firms budget for an effective cybersecurity training program? That, that, That seems to be a hard sell for some of them. It is, and it's such an important piece of the puzzle because you could deploy amazing technologies. Multi-factor authentication is a great example. But if a hacker tricks someone into clicking a link, then that's all for naught. So step one is to know who it is you're training. We need to train employees, but you might also consider training clients, communities. It's a perfect topic for a lunch and learn or a webinar. Clients usually appreciate that kind of training, and your risk is in part dependent on them. If a client sends you an infected file and 
an attorney opens that, you can be infected in turn. So we're all connected. So know exactly who it is that you want to train. And then think about the frequency. Most organizations today do some kind of annual cybersecurity training, which is great, but that's not enough to keep security top of mind year-round. Instead, you want to consider doing training at least monthly or on-demand. I love on-demand, and I think um, since people have started to do work from home and have more flexible schedules, it's a really great option for people. The ballpark uh, dollar amount that you uh, that you can budget for uh, on-demand regular training is anywhere between $10 and $30 per head per year, which is a pretty reasonable amount considering the protections that it affords you. Your human firewall is really important. You might also want to consider specialized training for key roles, but that's, that's kind of of a ballpark. Um, you may want to have training specifically for your IT staff, specifically for HR, or for anyone that handles very sensitive information, or, you know, make it a CLE and train your attorneys. But for that monthly on-demand stuff, 10 to $30 per head is a pretty common range. And you're quite right that it will get CLE credit in every state that we've ever applied for it. <laughs> so that that's another uh, bonus for the lawyers. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. What could be more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? CaseFleet's powerful software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and to track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, CaseFleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com forward slash digital detectives and get 10% off your first subscription. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is planning your cybersecurity budget for 2022. Today, our guest is Sherry Davidoff, the CEO of LMG Security and author of the recently released book, Data Breaches. As a recognized expert in cybersecurity and data breach response, Sherry has been called a security badass by the New York Times. Uh, I'm kind of jealous that you got that title. I, I wanted that one, <laughs> Sherry. Uh, and and look for her new book coming out soon on ransomware response uh, called Ransomware and Cyber Extortion, Response and Prevention. So, Sherry, let's pick it up again and say – and for our listeners, how about a little free advice? Uh, what can they do – What do they do if they get actually compromised, if they get hacked? Um, How can they keep those costs of that, that cyber incident down? Yeah, great question. Actually, before I jump in, Sharon, you are my favorite badass attorney, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you. I I feel much better now. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the last thing you want is unplanned expenses that aren't in your budget, right? So we really want to think about how do we keep the cost of a cybersecurity incident down? You can't prevent everything. 
Early detection is key. And again, back to investing and monitoring, think about who is monitoring your environment, both the cloud and uh, your local network environment, and how would you know if something bad happened? According to FireEye, 76% of all ransomware attacks happen after hours and on the weekend, so you may not even discover it. And I've seen quite a few um, attorney, uh, attorney hacking cases where they're gonna hit you on a Friday evening and you're out for the weekend and you don't find out till Monday morning and all the damage is done at that point. So early detection is absolutely critical. You want to nip it in the bud, ideally before anything major happens. Find out that a computer is infected right away, ideally within minutes. And then hopefully you can prevent the attackers from actually stealing anything. Invest in that monitoring. And feel free to drop me a line on LinkedIn or anywhere if you have any questions about that. Also, you want to make sure that you have a fast response. You want to make sure you know who you're going to call in the event that you have an incident. You don't want to be struggling thinking about, who am I going to call? How much is it going to cost? It's a good idea to have an incident response retainer in place with an organization that's familiar with your environment, or at least you've taken the time to have a, a conversation or two with them in advance. And make sure you understand your cyber insurance coverage and you know that your response vendor is going to be approved by your cyber insurer if you have that, and that you are working with a experienced uh, cybersecurity attorney or data breach attorney so that they can guide the investigation. It's wise to conduct tabletop exercises ahead of time. That's where you sit around a table and you have an experienced professional guide you through a scenario. These are absolutely invaluable. I've done a zillion of them. I'm sure Sharon and, and John, you probably have as well. And you always find um, communication gaps or unexpected differences in expectations. Like the CIO or a partner thinks you should call me at two in the morning if we think someone, if we think we've been hacked. And your IT folks say, oh, I didn't know you wanted to be woken up at two in the morning. So do those tabletop exercises so that everybody knows what to expect. And of course, back to cyber insurance, it can absolutely help cover the costs of any incident. So know your coverage, understand your sublimits, make sure you get approval for any, uh, any remediation work that you do or any response work um, from your cyber insurer in order to make sure that it is covered. And your cyber insurer can also provide risk reduction services as well as training. So take advantage of those perks if you can. Well, it was only today, Sherry, that I had a chance to read your wonderful article on your website, How to Find Ransomware Cyber Insurance Coverage in 2021. And as I told you before we got started on this podcast, I liked it so much. I've already written the blog that's going to go up tomorrow in my Ride the Lightning blog. So thank you very much for all that useful information. And maybe we can convey just a little about it here because people need to understand the role of cyber insurance. And of course, as lawyers have discovered to their dismay, the costs are going up by 30 to 40% this year. And they are just reeling because they're paying more and they're getting less. So would you expand on that? Absolutely. And I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to read that because that article was a labor of love. And I felt really fortunate that I, I got to get that information from the horse's mouth. I had the opportunity to interview underwriters and key executives within insurance organizations who shared their inside perspective. But what's important to understand about cyber insurance is it's not just about covering costs. Some of where cyber insurance comes into play is 
services. In fact, services is the name of the game when it comes to incident response. So when you think you may have had a cyber incident, one of the first uh, entities to call is your cyber insurance company because they have access, or many of them have a breach response team that's available for you. So you might be assigned a breach coach, um, which is a specialized attorney uh, who has the experience to guide the investigation. They can connect you with an incident response team. All this can happen very quickly. They also have contracts in place uh, for call center services, for public relations services, and all this can happen on a dime so that you are not scrambling in an incident to figure out who's going to help you. This is especially critical for small to mid-sized organizations or solo practitioners because you probably don't have your own security staff on call 24-7. You really want to outsource to the experts who are handling incidents like these day in and day out. So that's the first thing to remember about cyber insurance is it's not just about the financial coverage, it's also about services that can reduce the damage to your organization and help you get get you back on your feet more quickly. So with that in mind, it has been an eye-opener this year for many companies that are trying to get insurance coverage and all of a sudden find out they can't. Many organizations suddenly are getting denied coverage from their insurer or they're finding that their rates are rising 50% or more. And at the same time, as you said, Sharon, you're getting less for more money. We're seeing sublimits, particularly on ransomware coverage. You might think you have a million dollar policy, but oh, you've been hit with ransomware. And all of a sudden, you only have $250,000 of coverage. So the details in this matter. We're also seeing co-insurance where you pay 20%, they pay 80%, and those costs can add up really fast. So how do you qualify for great cyber insurance coverage with some of these providers that actually offer services? Well, I can tell you exactly what they're looking for because they shared it and it was pretty much the same, the same across the board. Multi-factor authentication is number one. Everyone in your organization needs to have multi-factor authentication consistently deployed across the board. And I can't tell you how many times we see almost everybody has multi-factor or some people do and some people don't, but a partner doesn't want to have it or a key executive doesn't want to have it. And you know what? They're the ones who are going to get hacked. And once you have like an email, uh, a business email compromise case where email gets downloaded, you can't put that genie back in the model in the bottle. All of those emails are out there. So multi-factor authentication is absolutely key, and that's what they want to see for qualifying for these policies. Second is restricting remote login interfaces. A lot of times insurers are actually scanning prospective insureds, even sometimes without you knowing it, to see if they have any um, open remote login interfaces accessible. And that will affect whether or not you can even get insurance coverage, and it may also affect the cost. So make sure you don't have any remote login interfaces showing up on the internet. They want to see that you're patching your systems regularly and that you have effective monitoring and detection in place. So those are the top things that I heard over and over from insurers. And it makes sense because it's in line with those key ways to reduce your risks. Uh, they recognize that if you are a higher risk, they're going to pay out more money. And so it's really a win-win if we all implement these technologies. So Sherry, what, what about the cloud for using the cloud for data storage and, and, and email, uh, you know, email cloud services. Does that improve our, the overall security for folks? 
It absolutely can uh, because cloud providers have the ability to introduce security features that might not be available to you in your local environment. So make sure that you're leveraging these advanced security features. For example, Microsoft Office 365 and Google offer some great ways to categorize your information, to classify it, track it, detect any threats in your environment. You just have to turn it on. In some cases, there's an additional cost, but in some cases there isn't. So take advantage of it. And also make sure to use multi factor authentication on all of the cloud apps you use. If a cloud application does not offer MFA, walk the other way and find a vendor who does offer multi-factor authentication because it's absolutely critical. So one of the questions we hear all the time from lawyers is, why is security so darn expensive? And they don't use the word darn, but maybe you can give them a bit of an answer. Well, the number one reason is because we store much more data than we need. So think about all the data you have. The data creates risk. I like to think of it as hazardous material. The more hazardous material you store, the more money you need to invest into controlling it properly and the more risk you have. So one of the simplest and most effective and cheapest things you can do to reduce your cybersecurity risk is start deleting that data. For example, put a retention time on your email. And I know that probably gave half your audience a heart attack just saying that. Um, but it will cheaply and quickly reduce your risk of having a data leak. Or at least if you're going to store a lot of sensitive data, you know, take it, archive it, and store it offline so it's much less likely to be breached. Most people underestimate how much data you have. Often you have multiple copies of information. So Sharon, if I send you a document, I have a copy of it. There's a copy of it up there in the cloud. You might have a copy of it on your local computer. Now I have three copies of the same data, which all can be leaked. So think about storing information centrally, setting a time on deleting it. You know, we're all data hoarders. We just kind of need a little security therapy to get over that and start cleaning things out. The other reason that security is so expensive is because we are 150 milliseconds away from every psychopath on the planet. So unlike in the real world, any attacker can rattle your virtual doorknob. And that's a piece of the problem as well. We want to reduce our attack surface, reduce those external login interfaces, and try to centralize as much as you can. And then the last reason is that cybersecurity is really new. It's just not really integrated into our processes yet. So if you think about here in the real world, you don't have to invest a ton in security to feel secure and to be secure. We have police walking the streets. We have effective laws in our society that, for the most part, deter crime. We have regulations like health inspections for restaurants, so you don't have to worry about being poisoned. That's a piece of security. So that means we don't individually have to invest a ton of effort or know a lot in order to feel secure in our day-to-day lives. But we don't yet have that security foundation in cyberspace. I do think we will get there, though. So, Sherry, last question for you. Can you tell our listeners what your top takeaways for cybersecurity budgeting are? Absolutely. Here are the key takeaways. Make sure you prioritize technologies that reduce risk quickly and effectively, like multi-factor authentication, password managers, Know what information you're trying to secure and delete the data you don't need. Deleting data will instantly reduce your risk. Invest in early detection. Invest in monitoring. Don't skip that step. It's really important. And then finally, make sure you have a good plan for what happens when you get hacked. It happens to the best of us, and you don't want costs that are outside your budget. 
Well, we want to thank you for being our guest today, Sherry. This was just a a podcast jam-packed with useful information. (laughs) So for the record, I want to state that not are are you only a cybersecurity badass, but an incredibly fast-talking cybersecurity (laughs) badass. We got about three times the content in the usual 25 to 30 minutes. So We just don't have time to waste you, Bill, by the hour. we got to get it all in. (laughs) That was just awesome. Awesome. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure, Sharon and John. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.